I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Today's episode has been sponsored by Pediatrician in Your Pocket at dr-gen.com. Dr. Jennifer Trachtenberg is a mother of three and a 20-plus year pediatrician, board certified, who has called all of her amazing advice and made a series of five-minute videos on everything from feeding and sleeping to safety and all types of parenting issues, which basically every parent out there can use, especially in the middle of the night when you can't reach your pediatrician. So this is like a must do. And she's offering a discount to everyone with code PIP20. PIP20 20 is the code to get 20% off of all of her modules. So definitely go to dr-gen.com and check it out. It's also on a link in my website too, zibbyowens.com. I'm here today with Barbara Natterson Horowitz, MD who is the co-author, along with Katherine Bowers, of best-selling book, Zubiquity, and their latest, Wildhood, the epic journey from adolescence to adulthood in humans and other animals. A visiting professor in the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University, Barbara is also a professor of medicine in the UCLA Division of Cardiology and president of the International Society for Evolution, Medicine, and Public Health. She currently splits her time between Cambridge, Massachusetts and Los Angeles, California. So welcome, Barbara, a.k.a. Dr. Natterson Horowitz. <laughs> Take your pick-up title. <laughs> welcome to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for coming. So can you please tell listeners what Wildhood is about? Wildhood is a book that looks at growing up very broadly. It tells a story of 500 million years of reaching puberty and developing into a mature adult and why it's so challenging and how much we can learn from animals who've been doing it for a long time, some well and some not so well. <laughs> and you outlined four key life skills that all adolescents, both humans and animals, have to go through. How to stay safe, how to navigate social hierarchies, how to communicate sexually, and how to leave the nest and care for oneself. So I know this is basically what your entire book is about, but what are some of the most blatant ways that animals and people share these things. And tell me about how you discovered this. So I have, I guess, an unusual background for, for somebody to be writing about animals. I mean, I spent over 20 years as a physician, as a cardiologist, a professor of medicine at UCLA. And one day I got a call from one of the veterinarians at the Los Angeles Zoo who wanted me to come and image the hearts of some of their animal patients. It was actually a chimpanzee who they thought had had a stroke. And that experience led to a request a few weeks later to image a gorilla's aorta, and then a few months later, the heart of a lion they thought had metastatic breast cancer, and so on and so forth. And what happened over the course of several years is that even though I was spending, you know, 98% of my time at UCLA, at the human hospital, taking care of human beings with heart attacks and high cholesterol, etc., I was also going to the zoo periodically and joining the vets on rounds where they were talking about heart failure in a kangaroo or metastatic melanoma in a rhino and, and even behavioral problems. They were talking about dosing fluoxetine, which is mm -hmm. Prozac effectively, for some of their animals who had compulsions and anxiety. And I had this aha moment. It was really an aha moment because here I had been a professor of medicine for 20 years, taking care of, you know, very advanced cardiovascular disease. I've been teaching medical students. And I really had never thought much about 
the so-called human diseases and non-human animals. In other words, I just, I thought about cancer and heart diseases, diseases of civilization. Those are human. And I just hadn't really looked at it from a broader perspective. So I started getting interested and got more interested and eventually started writing about this more than anything else and now spend all of my time looking to the natural world across species and evolutionary time for insights into human health and development. So this whole kind of the genesis of wildhood is really the story for me of my life over the last 15 years. And while I work with a brilliant woman, Catherine Bowers, and for over 10 years, we've been research and writing and teaching uh, partners. But during that period, we wrote a first book called Zubiquity, which looks across species at cancer and heart disease and eating disorders and anxiety and self-injury. But we had, at the same time, we both have kids who were entering adolescence. Mine are a little bit older. They were kind of in adolescence. And so we were hearing a lot about what everyone was worried about, depression, anxiety, substances. Social media wasn't really a big thing at that point. But we started wondering whether we could take this lens that we developed to which we were applying to health concerns and see whether we could find commonalities or differences between animals in this phase of life. That is, puberty has started, but a mature adult has not yet emerged. And if we could, what what could we learn? So that's, I don't even remember what your that's original okay. question I, was. I was basically but... asking about the entire book. So that's, that's uh, basically how you answered, which but, is great. And how you do it and how you uncovered all of this research. So, But so, the, I think what your question I'm realizing is that the, there's so many things that we learned. And I mean, it has, I mean, the thing that I can't believe is how blindfolded I was before I started spending time with veterinarians and and thinking in this species-spanning way. I mean, I like to say to my students on the first day of class, check your human exceptionalism at the door because it's a blindfold that's prevented us from seeing connections and patterns that can help us better understand ourselves. But so of all of the many insights and just shivery-inducing, revelatory things that came from five years of studying wild animal adolescence, it was essentially the thesis of the book, which is across the animal kingdom, there are four universal high-stakes tests that shape the destiny of every adolescent. And that realization that as different as we are from... (laughs) marsupials and amphibians and fish, that fundamentally that experience of being big in size, but low in experience, it challenges every animal, presents the same problems and opportunities for every animal. So that was, that's been one of the most inspirational and humbling insights of the whole project. Did doing all this research make you look at your own children in a different way? I know that's, you know, taking such something so insignificant, probably in the context of this like groundbreaking research, but just wondering, like you have, you know, your sample set of your own adolescence at home. Did learning all of this about the animal kingdom have implications for your parenting or day-to-day life or a, a greater sense of understanding or compassion for adolescence? <laughs> I mean, I don't even know how to start. I mean, first of all, I look back and 
I wish that particularly when my daughter was going through adolescence, because she was sort of in her late teens when this was all happening, that I had understood the connection between status. And by that, I mean, so all vertebrates live in hierarchies. And what that basically means is that every individual in the group has a perceived rank relative to every other individual. And, you know, status is kind of an ugly word, like in proper society, it has some negative tones to it. But essentially, it's a word to describe the perception of of where you stand relative to the other fish or birds or wildebeest that you're living with. And one of the biggest insights was what happens in a fish's brain, for example, when she experiences status descent. Her serotonin levels, these serotonergic networks, are activated and there's a reduction in serotonin. And the behavior, you can watch a fish who's had status descent, and they they stop moving around as much. They stop initiating activity. They get very withdrawn, actually. And on the other end of it, what's called the winner effect, the fish that keep you know, being compared positively, they're really, they're moving around a lot and they're initiating stuff. So, so, so the fish who's not that cool anymore is now depressed, acting depressed. Uh, again, to be careful not to anthropomorphize, okay. I would say, and I'm winking at you because... I don't think we need to be that worried anymore about anthropomorphizing. I okay. think I was just, you know, you know, distilling in case <laughs> that went over anybody's head. I was just giving a, you know, but a, the point, a dumbed down example in case, you know, but the whatever. idea that mood and why am I saying mood? Because serotonin, I mean, there's, I mean, mood is really complicated, lots of factors, but just to break it down, I mean, the most the most popular antidepressant drugs are the serotonin reuptake mm-hmm. inhibitors. We know that serotonin is entrained with human mood. And it turns out those same serotonin networks are really detecting and signaling a shift in status. And probably because high status is so fitness enhancing, that is it increases survival and reproduction in the animal world, those serotonin sort of the the, the burst of serotonin is probably a kind of pleasure reward for whatever it was the animal was doing, a kind of at a girl, do it again. And a fallen status may be a kind of hmm. chemical reprimand. And if you sort so the reason that this, um, as we were doing this research and, and finding these connections and how we studied it scientifically, we can get into, but the parenting point of it all was I started thinking about how I used to respond when she would be concerned about what some girl or a couple of girls who, you know, weren't such, I didn't think were any great, great big deal about what, what they thought of her. And I would say things like, which I wish I hadn't in light of what I know now, why do you care about what she thinks? Why do you care about what they think? And And knowing that in the animal world, status is literally, literally a matter of life and death, and status descent is. And what happens to a fish when there's, and by the way, not just a fish, but a lobster, we have the whole set of animals in here. What happens when they rapidly tumble down that social ladder is that their neurobiology is changed and their behavior is changed. And again, I can't ask a lobster or a fish how they feel, but... I believe what we call human mood, what we use our human language to describe as happy, sad, humiliated, depressed, derives from those serotonin-based 
status signaling networks that are telling an animal when there is a fall in status, this is really bad. That it, in order for the signal to work, it has to be uncomfortable for the animal. And almost, let's just say, painful. And I started, as, as I was working on this, I was thinking about how, you know, I'm a, I'm a physician and I know about pain. And I think, like a lot of physicians and a lot of people, I sort of, even though I know psychological pain can be very, very, very painful, obviously, still physical pain seemed more real to me. And knowing the purpose of psychological pain, that is the evolutionary origins of it, that it's to really shape an animal's behavior, to catch their attention, like, "Uh uh-uh, this is really bad. You're at the bottom of the ladder. Do something about it. It has to be very painful for them to pay attention. I wish I had known that. I think I would be more compassionate about what it feels like to maybe lose a little status Mm -hmm. or a lot of status. And I think in the book, it was so interesting how you compared it to social media and friend groups today, and not to take it away from the animals at all, but just in the way that it has real life implications, how the comparing in the social network, you talked about in the book, how it used to be like as a teenager, you could go home, you would go to school, you would have all this status comparison at school, stressful, stressful, kind of like the animals roaming around, whatever. But then you could go home and regroup and you could let your brain rest and whatever. And now you go home and it's constant 24-7. You're on Instagram all night. The kids are seeing each other's friends and monitoring their status basically constantly, which is leading to XYZ fatigue and depression, anxiety. I don't know. So what do we do about that? Yeah, no, it's really interesting. So what is social media? Okay, so why, why, I mean, to sum it into one sentence, I guess it's lots of things, but a big part of it is about comparison. Mm -hmm. It's about who am I relative to everyone else? And usually, I think the people who are on social media ultimately feel less than, because, I mean, not only are you competing against the whole world, you're competing against a filtered whole world Mm -hmm. of images and, 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 so the biology of comparison, as I said, I think that's the, the building blocks of mood. So we see in the last several years, this uptick in depression and anxiety in adolescence, which is interesting because rates of mental illness among adults has remained, mature adults has remained pretty stable, but we're seeing this real uptick. And people are properly observing that there seems to be an association. Like, I don't think we've gotten to Cause. cause, but yeah. there's between social media use and anxiety and depression. And not only that, there seems to almost be a dose response curve, like the amount, the number of hours per week that people are on, the kids are on social media it relates to the likelihood of having depression, anxiety. So what's the connection? And I think that not only is serotonin maybe the common language, kind of that common molecule that can help us decode like the ups and downs in our kids' moods, and by the way, our own moods. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And even though I, I don't like saying it's about status again, but it, right, right. it's I don't have another word for it. But the other way that this lens, I think, can help us understand and maybe do something about it is this. So there, you can use an evolutionary lens to understand lots of things. Let's talk about obesity, right? So we have this skyrocketing rates of obesity. And one of the ways we talk about it is we say, okay, we're walking around in these bodies that we have this 
inherited, let's say, that we have this ancient, not only human, but we have this animal you know, legacy. And a lot of our metabolic machinery that we have, you know, is shared with not only other mammals, but other vertebrates. And the systems evolved in settings where calorie scarcity was a given. Like when you're a wild animal or early man, you're living in nature, you know one thing, like there are going to be periods where there's not enough to eat. So as our metabolic systems were evolving and being sort of optimized and tuned to the environment, they were being optimized to a a calorie-scarce environment. Now we've got this mismatch between this physiology that's adapted to that environment and now this like obesogenic, you know, whatever we want to call it. So that idea, Catherine and I started wondering about taking that idea and applying it to the skyrocketing rates of anxiety and depression, especially knowing that comparison seems to be a big part of mood, or at least fluctuation of mood. So we started wondering whether our social brain networks, which is the social brain network, you know, is it literally, there are anatomic regions of the human, the avian, the reptilian, the amphibian, the fish brain, that's responsible for detecting changes in status, and then signaling what to do about it. So there's a lot of brain real estate that's being occupied. It's important. But maybe animals in the wild have, or, or early man, or whatever frame you want to use for, our, for brain evolution, that assessments and competitions were periodic, seasonal. For example, there are spe- a bunch mm-hmm. of species where they compete during a certain pre-mating season, and that's it. And then it's, the hierarchy happens, and boom, they go along. And maybe what we have now is a mismatch between social brain networks that evolved for some or intermittent, maybe even seasonal assessment. And now it's, you walk into school, it's in the cafeteria, it's in the classroom, it's academic, it's sports, it's looks, it's blah, blah, blah. And then there's no sanctuary because you walk out of class, you, you're on the bus home or whatever, and you reach in your pocket. And now, did I get any likes on my Insta post? And it's, so it's this kind of tsunami of assessment. It's what we call assessment overload. Mm-hmm. And what an evolutionary frame would say is, okay, if the reason we have all this obesity is because we've got bodies that are evolved for one situation and we're in a completely different situation, well, let's change the environment so that it's more aligned with the physiology. And so the parallel here would be, let's align the environment to be more tuned to this physiology and decrease the amount of assessment. Mm -hmm. And I think social media is a big part of it. Now, how to accomplish that, I don't know (laughs) because it's so addictive, but that's at least our working hypothesis about the connection between all these emotional symptoms, and particularly anxiety, which is that feeling like you don't know where you're going to land in the hierarchy. If depression is that sad fish and euphoria is that winning fish, anxiety is that walking into a party and not knowing people are sizing you up and down and that feeling. So So in my senior year of college, this is going going back in the day here, 1997, 1998, my thesis, I was a psychology major and I did a study on the application of social comparison theory to eating disorders. And I tested for, you know, 
comorbidity basically of depression and anxiety with social comparison theory, which by the way, never got published. And my advisor and I tried to like put it in some psychology journals and all the rest, but that was my theory. It's how much people compare what they eat how depressed they are, and it leads to eating disorders, right? Because I noticed, you know, in the college setting, of course, like so many girls, and myself included, not, I didn't have an eating disorder, although I might as well have, but whatever. Anyway, um, I was always noticing what everybody was eating and saying like, well, she's having this dessert and I'm having this. Anyway, I know you're going through your slides here to show me how it's like the same thing. Because I completely agree, and I... Um, Gosh, there's so many things. So in Zubiquity, we wrote a chapter about eating disorders, but basically just to point out that how we feel about what's going on in the world, whether it's social stress and we as we as animals, it affects our appetite, Mm -hmm. right? Clearly, I mean, and there's really good reasons for it. When animals are, when red deer are grazing, I have these videos of these Slovenian red deer grazing. And when there's lots of predators around, they can smell it. They eat like this. They they take a bite and then they look up. They're hypervigilant and then they take a few bites. And they look up. You look like my daughter. <laughs> That's exactly how my daughter eats. Oh my God. Okay, sorry. Go so on. Then, and then when they call the predators, and I have the video in my class, I, yeah. I teach a course based on, and you see them, they're grazing and they're eating more and they're relaxed. I mean, so clearly the perception of danger and risk is affecting their eating. But the other piece is social. That's predators, right? But what about the social experience, because I'm just saying that, you know, Mm -hmm. we live as these social animals and that hierarchies are affecting how we feel. And by the way, one of the big advantages about being a high-ranking fish, let's say, or (laughs) is they often restrict access of food. So the subordinates don't get to eat as much. And it's so interesting because for birds, when you're high-ranking, you know, when there's food, you'll be able to eat. So they, they don't overeat. They eat just enough. And the reason it's important as a bird not to overeat is, again, wild animals balance starvation and predation, but your flight initiation time, if it's if it takes too long, you're going to be the one the predator gets. Mm-hmm. And so a lighter body mass leads to a faster flight initiation time. And the, whereas the subordinates who are often hungry, when they do find food, they overeat. And I say overeat because it actually affects them, their survival. So even though the dominants have more access to food, the subordinates tend to weigh more. And so they're actually at greater risk of being eaten by the predators, which works in favor of the dominants, right? Because then they're, so it's this whole interesting piece. Yeah. But what happens in social settings is lots of different eating. So this is a captive example, but captive great apes and some marine mammals, orcas, walruses, when they have social stress, when they feel isolated or even bullied, some of them engage in this, it's it's self-induced vomiting. And it's a cycle of vomiting. And then they ingest the emesis and they vomit again. It's not very pretty to talk about, but it's a response to isolation and social stress. And um, So it's like bulimia for animals. I mean, <laughs> I, I wouldn't go that far, but, okay. but I would say, I, I would never go that okay, far. Sorry. But No, no, but I think there's some shared mechanism. And my hunch mm-hmm. is that there are bulimic patients, people who have bulimia, who talk about 
both the binge phase and the purge as being stress reduced. Like it, mm-hmm. it really, it's like yeah. a relief or release. And the binge part kind of makes, I mean, you know, when you eat food, it can calm you down, but the, but the purge part mm-hmm. is, a, I think, a little harder to kind of, for me to kind of get on top of. But it's interesting, and I wonder if there's some sh- some shared mechanism, uh, some self-soothing, like, vagal mechanism mm-hmm. that they share. But the social— Maybe your next book could just be all about, <laughs> all about anim- like, the animal implications of the way we eat and the way we, you know— I mean, I know you have some of that in all your books, but— just to, just to give you an idea for another one. This one, I've been I've been working on a paper with an eating disorder specialist for like, it's the paper that will never get done. It's like we keep on changing it and finding new and different things. But I came across a study, it was done years ago, of goby, this, I think they were brown goby. And goby are these, you know, pretty mm-hmm. common fish. And it, completely interesting. So the dominant gobies, they're dominance and subordinates. And the dominants that were studied Tolerate the subordinates is fine. It's they're fine. So they're going about their life. They're getting bigger. Subordinates are usually younger, mm-hmm. right? Because you so we like call them adolescents, and they tolerate them until they get within five to ten percent of their size. So the dominants are like, oh, that's fine. She can swim there. But as once they're in five to ten percent, they're perceived as a threat, and the dominants go after the subordinates and try to cast them from the area, which is like 100% predation. So what these adolescent gobies do is they they have access to food, but they self-restrict to keep themselves from gaining weight and getting bigger so that to avoid conflict with mm-hmm. the dominance. And the, I was shocked that the investigators, they, they called it a diet. That's mm-hmm. not like my anthropomorphed yep. word. Yep. And I thought that was so interesting because it's really an example of using body size in a fish, right? Mm -hmm. That body size itself can create competition and tension between two individuals and that an animal can decrease the amount of conflict in a group by controlling how much they're eating. So that... Interesting. Oh, this is so, I mean, honestly, this stuff is so fascinating. And I feel like we've only like gotten like a pinprick of the mountain of material in the book. You know, I like didn't even know which to pick to like discuss today. So I hope that like listeners get a sense of like just how deep your research goes and like just how it makes us rethink everything that goes on in our day-to-day world. I think it's a, a really good sanity check to remember that the world does not revolve around us as people and we can learn so much from all the other species and you're pointing that out is super helpful. Well, I have to say, I mean, I feel really qualified to be sitting here, not for any of my academic training or anything, but because I really was not, my husband says I should not admit this to people, but I really was not much of an animal person. I would not, you know, I, we didn't have pets. I mean, we had like a mm-hmm. cat, I think as a kid, like it was, yeah. we weren't like, <laughs> And it's so funny because, you know, I'm keynoting the American Veterinary Medical Association. I'm going all, I'm like this, in vet world, I've become this figure. And I mean, now I have dogs and I love them. I have a completely different appreciation. But I was kind of the prototypic academic physician with one kind of point of view, probably arrogant. I don't know. Maybe that's for somebody else to say, but I had no idea. And I studied evolutionary biology as an undergraduate. But then, you know, I went to medical school. And so this whole experience for me, first of looking at, you know, cancer across species, I mean, 
I did a study of breast cancer in other animals, and I'm an Ashkenazi Jew, and I was being screened for BRCA1 mutation, which I am negative for it, but increases the risk of breast cancer. And it was around that period in our research that we learned about Venezuelan jaguars who have a pretty high rate of breast cancer and ovarian cancer, and some of them have BRCA1 mutation. And I mean, the connections, so first it was about medicine, because that's what I was professionally, but increasingly in wildhood is, I mean, it reflects this, this lens of looking across species in a very systematic scientific way. I have a methodology and I create these models, but can you can take this lens and you can literally put it on anything. So uh, we put it on adolescence for five years and we think we've learned a lot and have a lot of insights, but I'm just really excited about putting it on lots of things where that human exceptionalism, that kind of arrogance, that, you know what it is? It's this, I think human exceptionalism is, the worst part of it is it's all these unexamined assumptions Mm -hmm. about our uniqueness. Yep. And that's the blindfold. Yeah, that's true. Well, thank you for taking our blindfold off with Wildhood and uh, for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. (laughs) Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, the award-winning podcast. Today's episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books was sponsored by Pediatrician in Your Pocket by Dr. Jennifer Trachtenberg, dr-gen.com. Enter code PIP20, PIP20, for 20% off of these can't-miss modules that will make your parenting life so much easier. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. 